Okay. Reforming marriage. I hope you have all taken note of the peculiar title of today's sermon. Reforming marriage. Jezebel, Delilah, and constant drippings. So, I'll explain all of that in due time. But a couple things of note that I think are going to be significant, especially for today and ongoing Sundays. But it's sermons like the one I'm going to give today that Katie and I open up our house every Lord's Day and invite you to talk marriage. So there will be a lot of things said today. A lot of things. And I realize that when you talk about things that I'm going to talk about, they are accompanied with a lot of, well, what about this? Well, what happens when my husband does this? Or what happens when my wife says this? And those questions are expected. As I've said before, we want to get into the specifics of marriage. Because when we do, I think there's a lot of blessing for us. There's a lot of encouragement. And we want to be able to navigate the various issues that will inevitably arise in the marriage union and grow, continue to grow in the Lord together. But obviously there are limitations. Not everything I say can be exhaustively qualified. And so that is why we open our house. So I'm sure that there will be questions. I hope that there will be questions um, that we can discuss together. So please keep that in mind for this Sunday afternoon. We'd love to have you, if only for a little while, but that begins at, uh, at 4.30. And also, you husbands, as a reminder and exhortation to you, um, some of the things I'm going to say today will, will no doubt bring conviction, both for you and for your wife, and so this is an opportunity for you to uh, shepherd them, shepherd them lovingly, and wherever forgiveness and understanding are needed, so with God's help, you will be able to apply both of those things. Also keep in mind, most if not all of the things I will point out today can at times, though not always, can at times be connected to a lack of loving headship. So as we as we said at the beginning, men, it may not be your fault that certain things are happening. You are still held responsible uh, for shepherding your wife effectively. So please uh, pay attention along with your precious bride to the things that I'm going to say today. Now the various exhortations I will give will include some initial big picture things and then some shorter exhortations that I think will, when 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 acknowledged, when exposed, and of course dealt with humbly and according to God's Word, um, will be very helpful in the long and short run. And so, again, uh, think of this think of this sermon uh, as a, sort of a, I guess akin to checkpoints on a car, right? You take your vehicle in, they do a multi-point inspection, and some things are going to be, be bigger deals than others. Some things I cover are going to have greater, far-reaching, and more drastic implications uh, based, on, based on the subject at hand. So, there's, that is to say, there is the difference between a blown gasket or a thrown rod, and you know you just need some blinker fluid for your car. So, keep in mind the context. And the goal, of course, is to get through the big things first, the big overriding issues that are linked to what we have covered already. But again, my heart for each and every one of you is that your marriage would be blessed. And of course, that means 
often hearing difficult things, right? Hearing the hard things. And I think in, in reflecting on this for you women out there, one of them, one of the more difficult things, um, concerning talking to wives and even, um, adding biblical correction is dealing with the affliction that the full, all four waves of feminism have caused. And one of those big things is this issue of intersectionality. Now that women, especially in the United States, are viewed in much of culture as an oppressed class, you will find that the more oppressed you are seen as, the more you tend to develop an immunity or inoculate yourself toward accountability. And that's just the reality of the situation. And so, in very many cases, we see that it is immensely difficult to hold women accountable, to hold wives accountable, even in the church, because they are seen as oppressed. So corrections that are that are issued or attempted to be issued are often written off, and I kid you not, written off such as things as white mansplaining, we get that one a lot, or toxic masculinity. Another word that has come up a lot is patriarchy. It's all of those things. And what I'm saying to you is as believers in Jesus Christ, we can't get caught up into the weeds of of the confusion that is often set upon us because we're trying to deal with what these things mean. What we care about is the Word of God. What we care about is what God says about marriage. And what we care about is how God speaks into the lives of wives in order to correct them. Remember, no matter how oppressed someone may say you are, it does not absolve you of accountability to God's Word. And so that is... That is our starting point this morning, is to see what God has to say about this. And so, going back to the title, Reforming Marriage, Jezebel, Delilah, and Constant Drippings, we have, we have been talking a lot about the woman's role in the home, and, and specifically with regards to um, their response to headship, especially with submission, respect, even the word obedience comes up, to follow the lead of your husband. And we would say that in an ideal situation, your husband is consistently loving you. He is consistently shepherding you. He is consistently setting a godly example for you and your children to follow. And though we recognize that he will do it imperfectly, God's word stands clear that you are to honor and respect your husband. You are to honor and respect the office. And so, in getting to the specifics, this is sort of where the hard part enters the picture is we want to go over some of the finer points of respect, namely from the, uh, the perspective of, of disrespect. Where, where are some areas in the marriage where the wife struggles with respecting uh, her husband? What are some things that can be identified or called out specifically just to remind you, as we said, a checkpoint, right? An inspection, to ask yourself, okay, am I, am I doing these things whether big or small? Because if it is a priority in Scripture, it is a priority in your marriage. If the Scripture says, respect your husband, if the Scripture says, honor your husband, then it stands to reason that there will be instruction in Scripture of what it means when you fail to do those things. When you fail to show respect and honor to your husband. And I believe that the Word of God has some very helpful checkpoints against that. And so there are many, like I said, there's about four or five really big significant ones. 
And then the other ones, I believe, are just very helpful little checkpoints just to kind of question your mind. Okay, am I doing this? Is this a habit? Or did I just do that? Or am I tempted to do this and treat my husband in a disrespectful way? So, let's let's get into this. If you want to, with me, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. That's where we'll, we'll get started today. And Ephesians chapter 5 has been one of the foundational texts we've been referring to when it speaks to the, the marriage dynamic, this marriage union, when it comes to calling out husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church in addition to the fact that women are called to submit to their husbands. So, let's start chapter 5, verse 22, just to remind ourselves afresh of what this marriage union looks like and what it is to express. Verse 22, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be there to their husbands in everything. So write that verse down right there. Mark that verse 24. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So mark that there. Pay attention to that. Because that is the goal of marriage. The goal of marriage, the goal of the husband loving his wife is so that she might, that she might reflect the glory of the church. So that the marriage might reflect this reality of the relationship, this loving bond between Christ and His bride. So it is a sanctifying work. That is the goal of marriage. Each husband should desire that his wife have no spot or wrinkle, and be holy and blameless. So, verse 28, Husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. Because we are members of his body, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. So pay attention to the last part of that passage. And the wife much, must see to it that she respects her husband. So there is attention. There is deep, There is diligence here. That means one has to consider, one wife has to consider the respect she is paying to her husband. Remember, this is not something that is on autopilot. The man loving his wife is not some autonomic response. We have to be diligent as men to love our wives. And, as it, and it's the same thing when it comes to submission and respect. The wife is not on autopilot. There is a diligence. There is an attention to detail. There are checks and balances and there is accountability. There is questioning. Am I respecting my husband? Am I reflecting the truth of a submissive church who honors her Savior? And in the same way, am I honoring my husband? And so we use this as a checkpoint. And note that verse 24, the wives ought to be subject to their husbands in everything. Right? That there is 
again, nothing, nothing unchecked, that no area of life is free from accountability and subjection to that headship. So, in the first category, and I think this is the most all-encompassing one, is we are, we, we can, we can take a view at what we would call the unlovely wife. Now, once again, I realize this is harsh. An unlovely or a unresponsive wife. And one thing we find about the overarching, uh, love between a husband and his wife is that this love he gives her confers or bestows loveliness. If you're not familiar with that uh, tale, I believe it's, it's based in the ancient Near East, and a rich man, a rich young man, leaves his home to go to the town. He lives out in the country. There's not, there's not a woman available out there to take for his wife. And so he heads into town one day on a journey, and he goes seeking a wife. Well, he happens to meet a, a merchant there, and he happens to have a daughter. And of course, the townspeople come out because they're asking, what is this wealthy man from a far country doing in our little town? And then, of course, word gets around that he's seeking a wife. And so he goes to the, the merchant's house. Happen, they, they, they talk and he finds out, well, this merchant has a daughter, has a daughter who has been unable to find a husband and he seeks a husband for her. I know we kind of have to get used to this. It's arranged marriage. I realize it seems old hat, but work with me. So... He calls for his daughter. They kind of agree to make a deal. So he calls for his daughter and out walks this, this young woman. She's kind of limping along. Her, her face is downcast and she won't make eye contact with this young man. She may be a little frumpy, not, be, not seen as lovely. Her hair is disheveled. Not someone you would consider beautiful. And so, this young man and the father have this talk with the town kind of gossiping about what's going on. And before you know it, this young man takes her away. And they go to his country and they get married. Well, a year later, they return. And of course, it's there, there's a big to-do because this rich young man has returned with so presumably his wife in tow. And they all, they all gather around to see what's going on. And he arrives. And of course, he gets, he dismounts his horse and he's greeting people. And then, of course, on another horse comes this woman, and this woman is beautiful, and she is, and she is lovely. And everyone, and everyone's eyes are fixed on her. And what happened is that when this young man originally talked to, to, uh, her father, the deal made was a dowry of two head of cattle, as the story goes. And that's what was in everyone's mind. And so when this woman gets off the horse, they don't even recognize her, because they thought, you know, that he was going to be bringing his wife back. Well, the townspeople go out and they, they ask her, well, who are you? We saw this man here last year and, and he married someone else. And she said, well, well, I'm, I'm, I'm his wife. And they couldn't believe it. They were shocked. And they said, of course, well, well, what happened? And she said, well, my husband gave a hundred head of cattle for me. And that story is a simple illustration of what the father gives up. The price that he pays. That is, Jesus Christ, his one and only son. The greatest price imaginable. A big price. Not because we were worth it. Not because we were lovely. But because he chose to set a great love on us. His love for us bestows loveliness. 
The love that He gives us is not so much an assigned value as it is a created one. The love that God gives us is the love from His own heart. And the idea, the goal of this love is that His church would be lovely. And so the goal of a man loving his bride, of prizing his bride and treating her thus, is that she would also be lovely. That she would be beautiful. That she would be sanctified and transformed as her faithful husband leads and loves her. And so we bring that up to say one of the overarching issues when it pertains to lack of submission and respect is a wife who does not desire to respond to a love that is given. Who wants to remain, for whatever reason, unlovely. And of course we would say this is very tragic whenever a marriage relationship comes down to this. Though the husband loves well and consistently, though not perfectly, the wife kicks against the goads and does not see the value of his love for her. And everything we talk about from here on is in some way an expression of that. But that is the overarching idea when it comes to the struggle and even sometimes deliberate lack of submission. And it is counter, it is hostile to the goal of loveliness and sanctification and beauty and spotlessness. The very goal of marriage. And of course, coming out of this are several things. And I think one of the uh, subcategories of this, in a way that a wife portrays or betrays uh, a lack of loveliness, is first category that we would call the deserter. When a wife desires to be unlovely, when she does not submit to be part of that transforming work of her husband's love for her, she deserts. Now this would be seen as the, I guess, the, the counterpart of male abdication, right? We've talked about the man abdicating his role as head of the household. But that even his abdication is an expression of his headship. He simply flees his duties toward his wife and toward his family and the rest of his household. And so this is what the unlovely woman does. She deserts her duties as a wife. And as we said, she wants to liberate herself from an oppressive patriarchy, and so she absconds from all of her household priorities. Submission being one of them. The priority of raising her kids. The priority of being a helpmeet to her husband. To put it bluntly, she sees things such as making a turkey or ham sandwich cleaning the linens or looking after her children as tantamount to working a salt mine in Africa or being gibbeted outside the Tower of London. There are some schools of thought that see it as that bad. But that is beneath their station. And once again, friends, those are the lies that feminism propagates. And you may think, well, that's ridiculous. And you ought to think that. That is ridiculous. We've repeated over and over again how submission from the wife, is an honorable thing. It is, And it brings many blessings in the marriage. 
if we are walking consistently with our respective marriage roles and callings, that brings blessing. Obedience never brings a curse. Remember that. Obeying the Lord by faith never brings a curse. It brings blessing, even though all may say otherwise. And so that's the, that'd be the second one under the overall heading of unlovely. And getting back to our uh, sermon title, let's talk about the Jezebel. And this is not a description we would want to throw around carelessly or lightly. This should be something that is uh, a, a title to avoid at nearly all costs. If someone ever calls you a Jezebel, that is not a compliment. But I would say Jezebel is probably the original boss babe. When we, when we come across words like slay queen, Jezebel is a queen who literally slayed. She slayed the prophets of God. She hunted them down and put them to death. She was a princess. Like really, she is the anti-Sarah. We talked about the princess bride the last couple of Lord's Days. Jezebel is the anti-Sarah in many, in many ways. She was a princess, the daughter of a king, of a pagan king, given to Ahab, king of Israel, who did more to provoke the Lord to anger than any other king before him. She was a craven idolatress and systematically murdered the prophets of the Lord. In fact, Jezebel is known as someone so wicked, her name is reserved for a false prophetess who was sowing destruction in the church of Thyatira. This would be something that happened several hundred years later. Most likely a nickname. Listen to what Revelation 2, 20-23 says. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel. And note, this is a church that is commended by Jesus for their perseverance. And yet, they tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Now, these are two things that seem to just point to uh, apostasy, apostate false religion, sexual immorality, and idolatry, idolatrous practices. And look at the, and look at the grace here. Verse 21. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. And you could look at the life of the original Jezebel and say, wow, there was a lot of patience there from God. A lot of patience. You read the narrative and you wonder what was holding God back from smiting her once she started killing the prophets. Of course, the only explanation is His mercy. He is patient. He gives even the wicked time to repent. I gave her time to repent of her immorality. She doesn't want to. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence and all the churches will know that I am He who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. Now look at this. Back in verse 22. Unless they repent of her deeds. What does this tell us very clearly? She is leading. She has usurped the role of leadership in the church of Thyatira. So she is calling the shots. She is seen as, as uh, leading by example. Of course, a godless example. But these are her deeds that are being emulated. 
and the threat is real. She will be cast on a bed of sickness. Similar thing happens to the original Queen Jezebel, but rather being cast on a bed of sickness, she is cast out of a window where dogs devour her flesh. A very violent and yet fitting end for one of the most wicked women in all of Scripture. But a Jezebel is what happens when you take an already godless woman and pair her with a weak and childish man. You know, we've said so much about the nice guy and the white knight, but you look at King Ahab. Not only is he wicked, but he is weak. He is a weak man. And so what Jezebel does when she comes into the picture is this type of woman does everything in her power to stifle the voice and the authority of God's Word in her marriage and household. This is probably the most profound, severe opposition one could ever see in a marriage, in a household. Whether the man tries to lead or not, the greatest obstruction to that headship will be a woman who actively tries to turn her husband against the Lord. And this is exactly what Jezebel does. Turns her husband to idolatry. Multiplies his idolatry. Leads leads him into treachery. Into murder. Into covetousness. Remember, we've talked about the woman being a garden, that she, that whatever the man brings into the marriage, she is a multiplying factor. Well, this, it's no different with Jezebel and Ahab. He brings this lack of resolve, this ungodliness, and she just multiplies it tenfold. Listen to 1 Kings 18.4. For when Jezebel destroyed the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and provided them with bread and water. That's how, that's how desperate the situation. To be at a point, to be at a, in a place of authority to the degree that you can order the execution of those who proclaim the Word of God. And that's what she does. Even in chapter 19, she sends a messenger to threaten Elijah, and this after his victory against the 450 prophets of Baal. So this is the heart of a wife that is like this. It does not matter what the Lord does. It does not matter how He reveals His power and authority and grace. It does not matter how and when and where He gives His people victory. She continues to oppose Him and rebel against Him. She will not bow the knee and will continue to wage war against the Lord and His people, refusing to ever accept defeat. And yet note the quarter, the provision her own husband gives her to do these things. But there's more than simply than just that. She, where she oppresses the righteous, she also promotes greed and envy. She shows any support for her husband for his own personal covetousness and advancement and enrichment. In 1 Kings 21, we read the episode, very sad story about Naboth's vineyard. Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard beside the place of Ahab, king of Samaria. In verse 2, Ahab spoke to Naboth saying, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it, it is close beside my house and I will give you a better vineyard than it in its place. If you like, I will give you the price of it in money. You think like, oh, that sounds like a pretty, pretty fair deal, right? But we find that Naboth is righteous 
in his, in, in his response. Naboth says to Ahab, the Lord forbid me that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. That was specifically forbidden in the law. So Ahab came to his house sullen and vexed because of the word which Naboth, the Jezreelite, had spoken to him. Look at this weak man. Oh, woe is me. I just wanted to have some veggies to grow next to my palace. Poor me. What am I going to do? And there's more. For he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and ate no food. And this poor thing, Ahab, quit being a baby. Man up. Obey the word of God. It's not your land to take. It's not your land to purchase. And it's not Naboth's land to sell. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, how is it that your spirit is so sullen that you are not eating food. This is Jezebel white knighting her husband. Talk about a role reversal. Not eating food. So he said to her, because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, give me your vineyard for money. Or else if it pleases you, I will give you a vineyard in its place. So of course, Jezebel takes that and says, give me your vineyard or else. That's all. But Naboth wouldn't do it. So Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you not now reign over Israel? Oh, there it is. Do you know who you are? You're the one in charge. You have all the power. You have a right. You deserve this vineyard, Ahab. Why would you withhold from yourself what you deserve? You're the king. Go act like a king. So you see the pattern here. You see this woman who eggs on her husband to pursue an unrighteous, godless path. And then he says, Arise, eat bread, and let your heart be joyful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. Naboth won't give it to you. More importantly, God will not give it to you because God has given it to Naboth. Don't worry, I will give it to you. Let your heart be joyful. And this scene reveals what makes a Jezebel so dangerous while turning her husband away from God. She becomes an active facilitator of his sins by being sympathetic to his greed and covetousness. This is the most dangerous kind of wife. And so Jezebel becomes a garden to her husband's sinful seed and multiplies his own wickedness. Taking matters into her own hands, and says she will give her husband to her husband what is only God's right to give. And of course, the rest is history. A sad tale ending where Naboth is falsely accused of blaspheming the king and God, and he is promptly taken out and killed. And that's it! Who came to Naboth's defense? But such is the destructive power of a Jezebel toward one who did righteously and obeyed God and wanted to keep the inheritance in his family. And there you have Ahab in his own sniveling, sullen way being egged on by a wicked wife and so commits murder. You see the way she dominates her husband. The Jezebel always seeks to dominate her husband. Don't miss this, verse 15 of the same chapter. When Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive, but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. 
And you would think here that there would be some question in Ahab's mind, wait a second, this is awfully convenient. Naboth's not alive but dead. Jezebel, what happened to him? There's no question. It's, oh, well, I guess I, this, he probably thought, oh, this is the Lord. <laughs> this is the Lord blessing me with what I deserve. Never a question. That is a man who is completely dominated. A man who is, as we used to say in the 90s, a man who is completely whipped. A man who has succumbed to the wicked influence of his wife. And of course, when we consider these things about Jezebel, and especially the truths that we've already brought up about the godly and virtuous wife, this is exactly the opposite of God's plan for marriage. That is, a man who lovingly leads his family and shepherds his wife. That's the first thing. And of course, a wife who in turn, in light of that love, being affected by that love, joyfully submits to him and becomes his faithful helpmate. All out of reverence for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's probably the worst one. The worst is over. <laughs> but this is an example of, you know, while, you know, having met each and every one of you and know you as husbands, know you as wives, I think I can confidently say that I have not met a Jezebel in our midst. But the warning still stands. The warning still stands concerning a wife who leads deliberately her husband away from the Lord. These are the... This is a tragic example of that. And so beware of Jezebel. Here's the second one. This is a big one too. And we've covered her in part already. But the sec I think another main category, and this would be number four, is the Delilah. And when we, when we bring up Delilah, the main thing we are talking about is emotional manipulation. This is something that wives, I think women, I think it is fair to say, are more emotional than men are. Not that men are not emotion, emotional, but women are more emotional, generally speaking. But we have to be on guard against the spirit of Delilah. And of course, this could be a, uh, you know, a subcategory of the silent wife, right? Talked about the fact that the wife should not be silent toward her husband, but should bring her cares and concerns and even her desires to him. But this is Delilah. And the thing that sometimes is missed about the Delilah is this is the second time at least that Samson has encountered this kind of woman. Now, if you want to turn in your Bibles to the book of Judges, I think we learn a very important lesson here. Joshua judges Ruth. So in chapter 14, you want to start at verse 15, it says this, then it came about on the fourth day that they said to Samson's wife, this context is a feast, entice your husband so that he will tell us the riddle. Remember, he gives them a riddle, gives the Philistines a riddle, and they can't solve it. And he's just gotten married, he's got his wife, so they go to his wife and say, hey, entice him. And that becomes a key word in Samson's life, entice. So that he will tell us the riddle, or we will burn you in your father's house with fire. How would you like that as a threat? Have you invited us to impoverish us? Is this not so? Samson's wife wept before him and said, Oh, you only hate me and you do not love me. You have propounded a riddle to the sons of my people and have not told it to me. 
Why are you keeping secrets, husband of mine? Why aren't you telling me if you will not tell me? Surely that's a sign that you really don't love me. You must despise me. I mean, note the use of hyperbole here. (laughs) You hate me. And so here's the manipulation tactic on display. And, you know, this is kind of, it can work in many marriages this way, but especially in a Christian marriage. Think of it this way. The top priority that God has placed on men as husbands is to love their wives. That much is very clear from the epistles. That much is clear from the Word of God. And so, where the manipulation comes in is for it to be suggested that he is failing in that regard. You tell a man that he's failing in his top priorities, that should alarm him to some degree. Because if he's taking care of all these other things that maybe are not as important, but then you tell him, oh, this is the biggest priority, Samson, or whatever your name may be, and you are failing at this. You are failing to love me, his wife said. You must despise me. And so what that will do is make him more pliable to his wife's manipulation because, of course, he wants his wife to feel loved. We all want our wives to feel loved. And so when the charge comes, I am not loved by you, we're going to want to do something about it. And so that, if we are not on guard as godly men, will make us more open to deception, more open to manipulation. So you go to Judges chapter 16, and eventually, of course, Samson gives up the answer of the riddle. But in Judges chapter 16, it says in verse 4, after this it came about that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. Imagine Samson just kind of stomping around, stomping around in big boots like Gaston, just kind of doing whatever he wants, you know, tearing lions to bits, loving women seems to be one of them, killing Philistines. This is a busy man. And he falls into all kinds of trouble. But then he loves a woman named Delilah. And here's a, and here's a Philistine woman who, who employs the exact same tactics as his first wife. They tell Delilah the same thing. Entice your husband. Get the secret of his strength. So there is much more uh, at stake in this mystery than there was the riddle. This is an enemy that the Philistines seek to put down and note that even in Delilah syndrome, there is active conspiracy against her man. And she uses manipulation to get to him, entice him. And in Hebrew, this word means to be spacious, to open up. Get Samson to open up. In some cases, it actually speaks to being open-minded, which is what our society routinely praises. And so here we see seduction, persuasion, manipulation. And at first, Samson actually does show some initial resolve because he's teasing her. He's not being honest. He's, he's not giving her the answer. And then finally, she says in verses 15 and 16, how can you say, I love you when your heart is not with me? I mean, what kind of man wants to hear that from, from his wife? You don't love me. Your heart is not with me. Oh dear, I've got to do something about it. And then she says, you have deceived me these three times and have not told me where your great strength is. It came about when she pressed him daily with her words and urged him that his soul was annoyed to death. We've got a great section on nagging coming up. 
annoyed him to death. And then, of course, he's at this point. He tells her, if a razor ever comes upon my head, remember he was a Nazarite under the Nazarite vow, if I ever cut my hair, I will lose my strength and be weak as any other man. And then he lost his strength. Of course, this kind of manipulation takes many forms. In the case of Samson from Delilah, it was accusation. Accusation. You're this, you're that. You don't really love me. Unless you do what I want. Unless you tell me what I want. That is manipulation. And of course, the principle here being, Samson lost his strength, his eyes were put out, and he became prisoner to the Philistines. And at least temporarily, they had their way with their enemy. They had defeated him. I think it's worth our time to just talk about a couple other ways that this manipulation is made manifest. There is accusation. Another way is silence. I am not going to talk to you to show you how mad I am at you. Until you understand how much you've hurt me. Until you admit that you don't love me. Another way is gaslighting. It's been a popular word as of late. Making the other person seem at fault, basically accusing them of the very things you are doing. It basically makes them feel like they're the ones going crazy. But they're really at fault. It's a great way to enslave a person to your will. It is a very sinister form of manipulation. Here's another one. Another popular way is, plain and simple, the withholding of sex. It is not a mystery. I think most women out here know this. It is not a mystery that your man craves physical intimacy. I think I'm right there. And one way that wives manipulate their husband is to withhold that intimacy until she gets her way. And in all these contexts, there is a common denominator, is that the man gives up his strength. He surrenders, at least in part, his headship. He abdicates his role as leader in the household, and that is the way of Delilah. And as we've said many times, that the, man's, the man is not meant to give his strength to women, but he is meant to give his strength to a woman and for a woman, for his woman. But he is never to surrender that strength to his woman. And over the course of Samson's life, we read again and again, that men lie in wait for him. And we find that the women in his life egg him on, accuse him of being unloving, so that he reveals the secret of his strength. And when he finally gave up that secret, he was helpless before his enemies attack. Now, I will say, most of you, when you give up your strength to your woman, you will not find your eyes gouged out in a temple of Dagon somewhere between two pillars. Most of you will not find yourselves in that desperate of a situation. But the principle stands. It may even happen metaphorically. You give up your strength, you lose your strength. You lose your authority in the home for a time. Sometimes a good amount of time. And the enemy makes sport of you. And so that's a lesson for you men. Do not allow your wife to manipulate you so that he, you lose your resolve to honor the Lord even above pleasing your wife. And I would say conversely, wives, don't lead your husband down that path. You both know that together you are to honor the Lord even above 
one another. He is first place in everything, and you do together what is pleasing to Him. So with our limited time, we come to the next one. I really wanted to get, get through this one. This is, <laughs> this is the nag. <laughs> um, most of you wives, if not all of you, have at some point in your marriage heard your husband say, stop nagging me. So, this is something that comes up in many Christian marriages. This is a pitfall for women. This is a pitfall for wives. It's just one of those things. And I would say, in every instance that I've ever done marital counseling, whether pre, mid, or on the verge of post, this issue has come up. And so we're going to go through it because I think it's very important that we understand this biblically because I think sometimes we get our definitions wrong And so, as husbands, we may give our wives a bad time over something that they're not even doing that is sinful. They're not even doing this. We may say, you're nagging me, and they're not even doing that. So let's understand what it is. So one thing is nagging is not reminding. So men, if your wife comes and she routinely reminds you of things, especially in a gracious way, a humble and quiet, with a humble and quiet spirit, that is not nagging. So don't tell her she's being a nag if she is trying to be your helpmeet and remind you of your priorities and duties. That is not outside the scope of biblical submission. So if she is patiently and gently reminding you to do a task over and over again, hesitate before accusing her of being a nag. So let's diagnose this issue carefully. What is nagging? So when applied to people... Nagging typically could be understood as scolding or pressuring or or the word, one website used the word badgering. And so what nagging underscores, I think a few important things to help us understand it. One is this, and talking to my wife about this this morning uh, really helped, but one thing that nagging does, nagging from the wife shows a lack of trust in her husband's decisions. That's one thing. To to, to you wives out there, your husband wants your trust. When he leads, even though you may not know every in and out of of the circumstances, he wants your trust. He wants to lead you, but he wants to lead you with you trusting him. And so when you nag, it shows a lack of trust in your husband's decisions. Here's the second thing. Nagging shows a bitterness towards those decisions. A constant mindset and attitude of, well, if I were in charge, I would do it a different way. And I will say very plainly, that is not your call to make. You are not the head of your household. And while you are free to give your husband gentle and humble counsel, we have said that as head of his household, he must make the final decision. In all wisdom and faith. Thirdly, nagging will not bring the fruit that you desire. Leadership and wisdom, namely, because a nagging heart won't trust that your husband could have done it without your nagging. That's very key. You will, you may find it surprising, but you have different priority, you may have different priorities than your husband, especially when it comes to issues of the household. Your timelines may be different, so you're going to prioritize things differently because you are two different people, and so you have two different perspectives. Even though you're Christians, you're you're not going to see things exactly the same. And so your husband may prioritize something differently than you. 
and you need to trust Him that He will prioritize those things in a Christ-exalting way. Here's another one. A nagging wife prioritizes offenses against herself rather than discerning if there is truly an offense against Christ. Now, I think it's very important to categorize these perceived offenses. And let's, let's add a very simple categorization. For the husband to leave a dirty dish out is not, to the best of my knowledge, an offense against the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Leaving a dirty shirt out, maybe even over and over again, does not, does not impede the advancement of the kingdom of God. However, laziness is a sin. Laziness is an offense against Jesus Christ. And so, the wife must, in implementing biblical truth, biblical wisdom, be able to discern the difference between those two categories. Between those two categories. But if she nags, she will prioritize those offenses. She will keep track against those offenses. And so, of course, repentance comes when she is able and willing to discern the difference between what truly is an offense against Christ and what is merely bending down and picking up a shirt. <laughs> so, I'll leave that for your consideration. But here's what the Word says, just so we can understand nagging a little more clearly. Proverbs 19.13 The contentions of a wife are a constant dripping. Constant dripping. Now, we live out in the forest, and for some reason I can't locate the, exact, the actual sound that it's coming from, but we have this drainage system. And you know when it rains, when it rains at any part during the day or the night, it's typically a pleasant sound. Because there's millions of little raindrops coming down all at the same time. There's something rhythmic and soothing and comforting about it. About it. You can fall asleep. But we have noticed when the rain stops, especially when it happens in the morning, it's maddening. There's this drip on metal over and over and over again. Even the Hebrew word for dripping sounds like dripping water. And it's hard to place it. But that's what's going on here. A constant, steady dripping. Proverbs 27.15 A constant dripping on a day of steady rain and a contentious woman are alike. Proverbs 21.19 It is better to live in a desert land than with a contentious and vexing woman. This word here is used also in Proverbs 6.14 to describe a man who sows discord. Vexing can also mean angry. This is a picture of a woman who is ready to fight and be disagreeable. That's why Proverbs 25.24 says, It is better to live in the corner of a roof than in a house with a contentious woman. Now why do I say all these Bible verses? Not just to hammer it home that... Uh, it, uh, having be, living with a contentious woman is not always a favorable thing. Here's the issue, is that it helps us understand what really is involved in nagging. It's not correction, it's not suggestion, it's not occasional reminders. There is a, there is a heart at work, and that is a contentious heart. So we must, men especially, understand nagging as a woman who is contentious, who is argumentative, who is ungracious. See, nagging is not just the actual act of speaking or 
are reminding the same thing over and over again. There is a motivation behind it. There is a tone within it. And that you as husbands have to be gracious enough to understand the difference that not everything is nagging. We understand, yes, we are busy. Yes, we are preoccupied. But have the grace to understand when your wife is trying to be your helpmeet by reminding you of things. Especially when it pertains to your actual biblically prescribed duties. Very important that we understand the difference between what it is to be a helpmeet and understanding what it is to truly be nagging. And so nagging comes down also to fighting when it is contentious, argumentative, and ungracious. Secondly, nagging as a distraction, just to kind of wrap this up. It becomes nagging when your desire for your husband to complete a particular task distracts him from his mission. As we just underscored, as men and women, you will have different priorities, and sometimes those priorities will come to loggerheads. There will be disagreements. But so many of these disagreements are not major issues. And that is why we go to Proverbs and say, it is the glory of a man to overlook an offense. We don't, we don't nitpick at each other. We don't henpeck one another. We don't look for ways to be offended when it comes down to this kind of thing. We take, we, we have to learn and to grow and be sanctified to take everything in stride, to think the best of one another, to recognize God's sanctify, continual sanctifying work. And so I would say, Add a, add a generous measure of grace when it comes to this. And give each other really the benefit of the doubt. And, and, choo- and resolve not to be offended when your wife comes and has to remind you of something. Remember, your calling is to be, wives, your husband's help me. He is going to be busy and he is going to forget things. And I would say that your husband should be occupied enough. He should be busy enough with his vocation, with his personal tasks of taking dominion, that he actually forgets things, like leaving out a dish or leaving leaving a shirt somewhere. He should be busy enough to where he is actually forgetting things. But that's precisely why you are his helpmeet. Because he's going to miss things. He's not going to see everything. He's not going to remember everything. He is busy at his tasks, hopefully, in an effort to glorify God by taking dominion and and advancing the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And He needs your help with those things. And so things, certain things will be left unattended. And that is the blessing of being a wife, is to help your husband in that dominion task. So when you pick up that dirty dish, when you pick up that dirty, grease-soaked shirt that you hesitate even touching because you wonder where he's been in the garage, you recognize the blessing in it. That's the key. It's a change of mindset. It's a change of attitude and perspective. See your husband not as someone who is giving you more work, but as an opportunity to help him that when you do things even seemingly that mundane, you are being a blessing to him. And you may not even tell him. But as we learned in Sunday school this morning, God sees it and God is honored by it. And that is a beautiful thing. That is what it means to be a glory and a covering for your husband is being a blessing to him in that way. And so keep that as your attitude, as your mindset, as a blessing to him rather than rather than waiting at home ready to greet him with all of the things that he forgot to do. 
Again, a man, I'll offer some insight. A man who works hard during the day wants to come, does not want to come home with a wife ready to pounce on him because he forgot some things around the house. No man wants to be greeted with a contentious woman ready to go to battle over tasks. A couple scriptures to encourage us. Ecclesiastes 10.12 Words from the mouth of a wise man or woman are gracious while the lips of a fool consume him. So it's simply this. Think Think about what you are going to say before you say it. Think about your words. In Romans 14, 19 through 20, we read this, and this is the alternative, of course. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. So how can you build, build up your husband? Husband, how can you build up your wife? When you are sitting down together, communicating about how you can take on these tasks together and not be offended, not be so thin-skinned when you have to bring certain things up. It's part of navigating the issues of life. So let's continue this text. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. Now the context of this is Christian liberty and our, and our, and how we treat the weaker brother. But I believe this important principle remains that in every area of life, especially the marriage covenant, you pursue things that make for peace, especially in your marriage. If there is any marriage that is to be built up and at peace, it is to be that. That is the key relationship to be at peace is your marriage and building up one another, not to tear down one another for the sake of your opinions and frustrations and the tasks that need to be done by whom and when. And of course, that will inevitably come up, but that is why you communicate. Got some great fodder for communication coming up at a church near you, but just so you're thinking about that ahead of time, so that you are pursuing peace with one another and not getting offended toward one another or even nagging one another when certain things fall through the cracks, because I guarantee you they are going to, because we are fallible creatures and we miss things. So I say all of this to you so that grace and peace will prevail in your marriage when these things inevitably come up. So this is where communication is paramount, and communication, of course, is down the road, but nagging typically begins because of a lack of communication. And I think, man, you guys, you guys share a home, you go to bed together, you eat meals together, you make love together, and you can't even talk about tasks? Like, come on now. Sit down and talk about how you can take on these duties together and bring glory to God in the process. Talk to one another. And as long as you're married, this will no doubt be a challenge. Right? Especially when you have small kids. Those challenges, those tasks tend to multiply. But hear this, especially if you have small kids. If you're investing in your kids, paying attention to them, and spending a lot of time with them, your house will resemble a training ground and not a museum. Right? It's okay if things are left out. It's okay if your house is not in perfect condition all the time. When someone walks into your house, they should see activity. They should see discipleship, training, raising up the next godly generation. That is, any Christian guest that you host ought to have the grace to understand that. That you ought to pay more attention to discipling your children than dusting your china. Understand your priority. So much more to talk about, but we'll close with that today. So remember those categories 
And I believe those are easily the most important and outstanding uh, ones to consider today. But once again, guys, the, the answer to this in closing, the answer to this, again, isn't our own resolve. It's not our own convictions. The answer to this is Jesus Christ. It is the Gospel that gives us hope to fulfill these tasks by faith to His glory as His Holy Spirit empowers us. And it is the Lord who will make every provision so that men can love their wives well and that wives can, can submit to their husbands and free themselves from these temptations to not respect them. So keep that in mind today. And like I said, I hope certain questions have come up in your mind and we are free and available to discuss them in greater depth. So I encourage you all to take advantage of that. Our house is open and so are our hearts. So uh, again, please consider that this afternoon. So let's pray. Father, thank you again uh, for your love and goodness to us. And uh, we thank you that we can consider some of these categories. And though some of them may seem alarming, Lord, they can snap us to attention. We, we realize, Lord, the importance of submission and respect. We can view it, um, we can view it in light of the fact that Christ has laid down his life for us, that as the ultimate example, he obeyed you perfectly. He fulfilled your law. He did everything that you sent him here to do. That he is the ultimate example uh, of obedience and submission to your will. And now he is exalted at your right hand, making intercession for us. And knowing that, Lord, how can we ignore his provision, whether it be in the act of love or in the act of submission and respect? Father, we recognize our need for you. Um, your wisdom to consider each of these things, whether it be the traits of a Jezebel, a Delilah, an, un an unlovely woman, or nagging, the various struggles that accompany all these things, Lord, we, we recognize our need for You. And um, that You call us to a higher standard in regards to marriage. So as Your Word has gone forth, Lord, we can trust You that uh, You will apply it to our hearts, that we can humble ourselves to see these things clearly, and to respond accordingly, Lord. We, we know that You love us, and we know that You love marriage. You created it. It was, your, it was Your idea, and that You have given it to us as a blessing. And Lord, we know that if we respond in obedience to these things, we will be blessed. Our marriages will be fruitful, and they will glorify You. And so we can commit by faith all these things with confidence in Your continued work in our lives. In Jesus' name, Amen.